0: Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. Who does that? We do. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, with me the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon.
1: Great to be here, Dan. I'm excited for this episode. It reminds me of, you know, why I wear my hat and also, um, you know, how much I love the Disneyland trains. So we'll just see where we go from there.
0: <laughs> well, I think those are, those. it's a great start uh, <laughs> to get it. But, you know, we have, speaking of trains, we have an engineer with us, <laughs> Denon. I mean, this is, this is great. We got one right on hand, right next to me, uh, digitally speaking. And then as our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser, Ben, have you ever run a locomotive? And if so,
2: are you broadcasting from said train as we speak? Unfortunately, Dan, I've not run my own locomotive, but I have found myself in this amazing city that's entirely steam powered. I don't know how they've managed to engineer all of this, but I'm very excited to find out how this whole city ticks. Well, I think that that's going to be, well, we're going
0: to do that as a group, Ben. So don't take that, (laughs) don't take that entire task on yourself. You know, Dan, I'm an
2: overachiever sometimes and but I'll, I'll let you guys help
0: <laughs> yeah, let us get involved here I don't want you to we don't need to overburden our engineer It's already too crazy in the world of steampunk which is what we're gonna talk about today now we came about this guys you know we did our episode on The Matrix we talked about cyberpunk uh, but today we're gonna talk about steampunk which is you know it's this interesting science fiction alternate history universe where steam, is the ultimate power source. There's no electricity, uh, everything's mechanical, there's no internal combustion engine. And typically, uh, this takes place in, you know, the Victorian era, uh, England, or in the Wild West. And I gotta tell you guys, when I think of steampunk, I think of the Wild West, although I'm pretty sure that it's mostly england that they that most of these stories take place and i don't know what you guys have seen or thought or whatever but that's that's what i was that's what the impression i was under
1: well that's where we're the opposite i definitely thought it was a victorian england thing dan I, and i don't know why i i think it's just you know the costumes in steampunk strike me as much more victorian england than wild mm-hmm. wild west but of course right. you know that does flash back to the movie that i shall not judge because you know i don't want to get a lawsuit against me um, of mm-hmm. of a similar name, so you know maybe sure. that's why the movie had trouble—is it was not in the right physical location? I'm just I'm just gonna, you know, suggest that perhaps you know should have been in England.
0: Well, now, now, what about you, Ben? I mean, what do you think? Did you have any thoughts on where this should take place, or were you just kind of new to the steampunk
2: genre? Yeah, you, you know, when I think of like the steampunk cosplay, I see it—you know—the conventions. I definitely it definitely is more. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a mashup of the two. I feel like it's Wild West, in a sense, meets Victorian era. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's just, you know, it's a combination and, you know, the Victorian era gets the credit because it's fancier and people want to feel like they're, you know, Victorian nobles with their fancy, you know, steam engines rather than being... Uh, you know, dirty cowboys in the West. I mean, <laughs> and crusty l- prospectors and stuff. L- let's point out, Dan. We 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 <laughs> yeah. totally
1: uh, uh, you know equate chimney sweeps with Victorian England, and chimneys are connected <laughs> yeah. to steam because you're burning yeah. coal, right? It's, it's I know, it's, I know, it's a long shot, but th- that's the logical connection there.
0: <laughs> uh, I think you might be right. Well, it's funny because we you know we just did an episode uh, on the Nevers, which takes place in Victorian England, which you would think is steampunk. But as we decided, or at least as by we, I mean I, as the dictator in this group, I decided that it wasn't steampunk because we never see steam power. It's more Tesla punk because it's about free energy and batteries and stuff like that. But, as you know, steam is key here. And the other thing is that this is extraordinarily analog technology. It's very gadgety, which, you know, I, I love that. And, of course... I love it because it's the epitome of a gear-based society, (laughs) and that is the namesake of our show, Gear-Based Technologies. Now, you guys may not know this, and I don't think anyone listening does. I don't think I've shared this with anyone out loud, only with myself. (laughs) But the reason why the show is named Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is because of Steampunk, because I was watching some people dressed in, in, you know, Steampunk cosplay, and I was like, this is so cool, like the way they were able to take gears and and mechanical stuff and and turn it into really advanced technology. I love that I'm excited to do this episode and I think we're gonna come to some real solutions and possibly redefine the Wild West or England depending on which one you really care about.
1: Well, and, and I'm really with you, Dan, on the gear thing. I mean, I think people really underestimate the power of the gear and what it did to transform what humans can do. Um, you know, we, we we Electricity gets a lot of credit, it deserves a lot of credit, I get that. But just think about that moment in your life when you went from a single gear bike to a three speed or a 10 speed bike and how suddenly easier it became to go up a hill. Like, what greater moment in life is there than, like, oh, my gosh, I go slower, but I'm not working nearly as hard. This is cool.
0: (laughs) Right. This is a world for inventors just like Ben. I mean, I I imagine you got to be a kid in a candy store here. Yeah.
2: Well, I I like that Den brings up the gears because we – You know, we don't think about that, but they're kind of the hidden heroes of a lot of our mechanisms today. (laughs) You know, you think about the gearbox in your car, the transmission in your car. Think of, you know, even internal combustion engines, they only really work well in a relatively small band of revolutions, of, of speeds. And we need these gears to change the speed of the motor to match the speed of the wheels we actually want. And... That, that invention and the perfection we've – the ways we've perfected it over the past century or two have enabled all sorts of mechanical machinery that uh, people three 400 years ago could never have dreamed of. You know, electricity gets all the headlines, but gears are the hidden heroes.
0: I love that. That's, that's an amazing quote. I, I would mm-hmm. really
1: like – can you get me – A mug, perhaps? Maybe a mug that says, (laughs) Gears are the hidden heroes? I'm just saying. I mean, I do like I am the physics phenom. It's a nice mug. Um, Some very handsome people are on the mug. But, you know. (laughs) Very handsome. But I I really think I I need a Gears are the hidden heroes.
0: Yeah. I I mean, that is an ultimate analog technology there. I mean, that's how, if you want to live in an analog world, that's how you hold water,
2: coffee, tea, whatever you'd like. (laughs) Well, and the reason they have to be the hidden heroes is because of how powerful they are. Because <laughs> gears are also super dangerous, and so you don't want you don't want to get caught in them. So we have to hide them. Oh, well, I, th- I think that's very true. Well, speaking of hiding. Ben, before you go too far off the rails here, (laughs) of course.
0: speaking of hiding, I think a t-shirt might not be bad either. This one is very, this is biology's nature's technology. It's nothing to do with steampunk, but maybe electricity gets all the headlines. The gears are the hidden heroes. Maybe that's next on the list. Um, But I'm not hiding from that fact anymore. Uh, I love it, Ben, and I'm glad you brought it to our attention. Well,
2: And, Dan, you can't forget about hydration, which is what drives the steam engine. Very true. And you can hide your water in a a fabulous uh, water bottle... Uh, and make your own internal steam power. <laughs> you can. Well, and I think that that's great because,
0: you know, speaking of steam, we got to talk about steam. But first, I got a couple of the things I want to talk about about the Wild West. I'm a Wild West guy. Now, I'm more of a weird West. I like the, the combination of supernatural and fantasy in the Wild West. Uh, you know, the, the advanced steam power wasn't nec- that's like third on the list, but I still love it. But it's the Wild West that I really like. And I'm so committed to this show and to the to the Wild West that I me- I watched that movie you're talking about then and it's called Wild Wild West which is I think the only major steampunk themed or, or steampunk genre release At least in the United States And you know It won eight golden raspberries You know <laughs> So uh, So it wasn't the best but it wasn't You know Critically a hit um, Yeah I think it's The biggest loss leader uh, The biggest loss In a major motion picture Since Waterworld But I, I have to say It has some redeeming qualities I think it got a little bit Of a bad rap And I know Ben You love the mechanical spider At the end Which is the epitome Of what you can do With steam power gears Uh uh, and a little bit of time and, you know, a dictator mentality.
2: Uh, that's right, Dan. I, I think you have to give the movie credit. While it wasn't a critical success, it was critically successful in displaying a ton of amazing gear-based technologies. That that movie is chock full of awesome gadgets, some of which were steam-powered.
1: And, yeah. and what I like, it does show a scale here, um, Dan. If you notice, they didn't make small spiders um, and that is—it no, was pretty big, right? And, and you know, <laughs> if you're going to make yeah. a gear-based steam-powered robot, you're going to probably make something large because you need a lot of space for your your steam engine, your boiler, your heating source, your pressure. Um, and so it kind of it, it works nicely together, right? Like the technology makes you go big, and if you're an evil dictator, you kind of want a big spider,
0: not a small one. <laughs> 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 that's, that's very true. That is very true. Well, the one thing I want to say before we get, I want to talk about, we got to talk about steam power here. I mean, it's the namesake of the genre. But before we do, I want to give a theme of what we're really going to do here because th- what's cool about Steampunk is it does this great job of maximizing the potential of the current technology without really any innovations. Electricity is a big innovation. You know, as we mentioned in a previous episode, Denon, you like this time period because it's, you know, it's a kind of an energy revolution. We're, we're changing how we're doing things but let's say we didn't and we kept steam we kept gears what's the best we could do and this is very similar you know in our archive 81 episode we talked about the pxl camera which could take video recordings on an audio tape which is maximizing the format i love that and i think that that's really what steampunk does and that's why it resonated with me why i was attracted to this genre but let's talk about steam you know we got to talk about boilers, uh you know the the steam power components. So first of all, let's talk about the physics. How does steam work? Uh like what what is the physical stuff that's going on? And then how do we how do we harness that to get it to do anything for us?
1: Well, I think it's, it's really kind of two cool ideas, right? Normally, before you had this breakthrough in understanding thermodynamics, steam, heat, and the connection to work, we knew that if you kind of did work, you often generated waste heat. I mean, just think about it. Every time you work out, what happens? Your body gets hotter. And you sweat, mm-hmm. right? Like
0: that's the- Oh, for sure. Right. It definitely gets hotter, day. Yes, that, that's, the, <laughs> that's the
1: epitome.
0: That's the goal, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the
1: epitome of thermodynamics in all senses right. of the word. Exactly. Um, <laughs> now, what, what the breakthrough was, was realizing this deep connection between heat and work and the fact that you could take heat you know, and use it to do useful work, usually by expanding a gas or pressurizing a gas and then sending it through something at high speeds. And and so that is kind of the general idea. Um, if you take a gas in an enclosed space and it expands, it's going to move a piston, and that piston, that motion, can now be used to do work. So the basic physics is very straightforward. Combine it, put a cool gas, or you know, start with water because then you can get from water to steam um, to even higher pressures, and and make the gas expand, move the piston. And then drive some other motion. And then you use all the gears and stuff to translate into the different things. So, the physics is also really cool because that steam, basic steam engine, is really the foundation of setting the limits of the efficiency of everything and any motor you might build. So, when you study physics, all you really do is talk about the Carnot cycle, this cool, basic, fundamental engine that is actually depressingly tells you the limits of your efficiency. No matter what you can do, you can only get so efficient and never make your perpetual motion. I can't speak. You can (laughs) never make your perpetual motion machine. I had to say that slowly, because otherwise I'd be moving too quickly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Your your mouth was in perpetual motion there, I think. but.
2: Denon, first of all, correction, it's a hot idea, not a cool idea. But <laughs> <laughs> Gotta I be also, accurate. I fair enough. I also think, you know, someday we're going to find that infinitely cold heat sink <laughs> and, you know, we're going to get that 100% Carnot engine. Someday, Den and I believe... <laughs> We're see find see that's
1: the difference here, you know. Right? <laughs> I, I will. I have to tell a short personal story. Uh, two gentlemen actually came many, many years ago to pitch their perpetual, infinite source of energy machine to me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so and, I already love this story. <laughs> and I was, I was, uh, I was unfortunately honest. They were willing to pay me um, to, you know, sort of evaluate their system. And I just said, look, I I know the second law of thermodynamics, so I know it doesn't work. And they said, but look, wh- where does it fail? It makes a lot of sense. And I said. I don't know where it fails because you've explained something in a very complicated way that I can't understand. I just know it fails, and that's (laughs) physics.
2: Now, Dan, they they could have been hiding an infinite heat sink somewhere. They could have. They could have. (laughs) Uh, Oddly, they were using
1: sand from the bottom of the ocean, so I don't think they were Uh, trying to hide any heat sinks. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, I can tell you, you know,
0: personal story. I first, my first story of the unexplained, how I got introduced to that whole world was a story about a perpetual motion machine, which, you know, obviously the story is apocryphal because it wasn't created. There isn't, it's not possible, but I imagine, you know, it's got to be possible in some way, shape or form, but that's not the purpose of this episode. So when we've got steam, we know we're not going to get a perpetual motion machine. How can we, what do we create? What does a steam engine look like
2: and how can we utilize it to power stuff, Ben? Yeah. So steam engines have a few basic parts. There's the heat source, which, you know, let's use the old timey steam locomotive as an example, because I think we've all seen that. So you have a firebox in the steam locomotive that is usually powered with wood or coal or oil, and that burns water or burns water. It burns that fuel. <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It burns that fuel, which heats the water in the boiler. Huh. So that firebox okay. will be surrounded with water to keep it cool. And also then that exhaust will usually then go through pipes through the tank of water. And that will boil the water. The water then... uh, gets collected into a steam collector at the top. You usually see these like kind of little bubbles on the top of the the locomotive. Those are are where the steam gets collected. And then you open valves and and drive those pistons, which we talked about earlier. And then those pistons convert that motion of the pist- the- the pistons' uh, linear motion which is back and forth. I can't forth. tell if
0: you're pitching a perpetual
2: motion machine here. No, it got no, very no. complex. Ben.
0: This is a real. Think, by the way,
1: I think this whole topic has too many of the letter P's in it and none of us <laughs> can pronounce lot. our P's correctly.
0: I think that's the
2: only problem we're having here, Dan.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the microphones are
2: not loving yeah. it, but yeah, so go So the piston moves the moves back and forth with from the pressure of the steam, which moves that arm which drives the wheel, and that's how the locomotive moves.
0: And so how can we, so in a locomotive, you know, we, we know we're using it to turn wheels and, and move it forward. But I know, you know, th- the Industrial Revolution was based on the steam engine. You had a, you know, big boiler and these places. And you had all of these belts going to different rooms. You know, that was kind of like the mechanical equivalent of a power outlet. You know, what was that doing? What were we able to use it to, to, to do the work that Denon's talking about? Well, I think just real quickly
1: from the physics here, Dan, I'll say before Ben tells us how to actually build it, you know, the key trick in all of life was changing linear motion into circular motion or vice versa, right? So we have in my house an old timey, I like, you know, Ben's phrase of that, I'll call it old timey sewing machine, right? That you don't (laughs) actually plug into the wall. It has a pedal with a belt and you would sit there and you'd pedal your feet up and down and that would rotate this wheel. And then the rotation would be turned to linear motion. And the sewing machine, you know, the little needle would go up and down like we all know. And now you're, you're sewing um, sort of by, you know, at a higher speed and more power because you've generated it through your legs and belts and gears instead of just your hand and a needle. Right. And what the steam engine does fundamentally is simply replace people power. Um, with steam power. So everything we had sort of figured out up to that point, whether it was a weaving machine, a sewing machine, you know, other types of assembly um, that we could do is all basically either moving things up and down or moving things in a circle. And you then just attach that to a steam engine using a clever engineer to figure out how to make those gears work. And that is my segue to our clever engineer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, when you look at the old timey locomotive, it's pretty clear what happens. You have the piston moving back and forth, which drives the wheels in rotationally and the and the train moves. Uh, that's pretty simple. But you know, steam engines were used for a lot more than that. Factories were run off of steam engines. So in Den's example of the sewing machine, there'd be there would be tailoring factories where everybody's sewing machine was hooked up with belts to a big overhead shaft that went through the whole machine you know they'd have these big belts often made out of leather that they could kind of clutch in and out off of their machine and you'd have one big steam engine you know at the end of the factory driving this whole apparatus and that is how you would get uh this rotational motion of the steam engine to everybody's individual workstations Wow, I mean, it seems
0: when you talk about big, it seems gigantic. I mean, these boilers and the whole the the whole mechanical process just seems so huge. And it makes me think, you know, when when it comes to steampunk, one of the cool things is you have a lot of you know robots. You got uh, cars. You got you know all kinds of stuff that are powered by steam. But you know, when we look at now, we've got internal combustion engines, and they can be very very small, you know, and still run a run a car. But these steam engines had to be huge. Miniaturization has allowed technology to advance and I feel like kind of one of the the downsides besides the danger of steam which we're going to get to in a second the downside is how do you you know how do you miniaturize it it's got to be even the smallest things are still pretty large I'm guessing
1: Oh I think that's so true you know the smallest scale is a very large scale um, for mm-hmm. the steam engines and I think there's really two problems there. One is just to generate the power you want right if you think about what's going on, this is an engine you're using it to generate power when we think about a lot of our miniaturization the key is electronics is what we're miniaturizing and there you know ironically the power demands are not usually the limit in that case right because you're uh, the way we use electricity but you know in the steam engine you need a big engine to make the power you want and you need the heat source, and it's really hard to shrink a heat source. So, you know, it's really fun, because in the (laughs) modern, it's really, yeah, it just is, right? You know, in, in the modern world, of course, scientists always like to make things either super small or super big, and so there are scientists who, for fun, make really teeny steam engines Um, With using lasers and other pieces, and they fully admit it has no practical value whatsoever. There's nothing you can do with it. They're just trying to understand the physics of the whole cycle of the engine, right? And make something really small and see what you can do. So if all you care about is knowledge, Dan, you can sort of make a steam engine small. If you want it to be useful, you're stuck with something big, which really... You know, it's an interesting question, then what does life look like? That's why I, I kind of loved your question of, okay, we don't get electricity, we don't get miniaturization, you know, what right. are you really doing with your, your steam engines and how small are they? Um, I mean, they played with things. I, I, ben, I think you heard about a bike that probably wasn't very small, even though we think of bikes as small, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> Right. Yeah. so people did make miniature uh, steam <laughs> engines uh, back in the day, but... You know, and you there are people who made steam-powered bicycles. You know, with our not you know not the old-timey giant wheel, mini wheel bikes, but you know mm-hmm. bikes that look like the bikes we have today. They just have a giant you know cup, a steam engine the size of a couple two-liter bottles on the front wheel uh, <laughs> right. to to move the thing. And so, so it's like a
0: moped, so like like a ped kind of like yeah. a, a steam-powered <laughs> yeah, ped. Yeah, I don't know a steam motor. I guess so it could still be a moped. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, yeah. but.
2: What's interesting about it is it does work, but when you get to these smaller and smaller things, you're, you're losing the economy of scale of the steam engine. And now you have this tiny steam engine that's only bike powered. It's only good for one person. And so now you, the bike rider, has to worry about is there enough water in there? Is the fuel running out? It, all this stuff. And, you know, it's a lot easier at a factory when you have a big steam engine because then you have... A person whose job it is to make sure the steam engine's working and everybody else who's running their sewing machines or running their table saws or, you know, whatever this factory is doing, you know, they can focus on their work while you're one steam engine tender does the job of dealing with the steam engine <laughs> was that their name the steam engine tender was that well actually it's probably the engineer
0: <laughs> engineer i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like steam engine tender i think that <laughs> I, I do yeah. like that and i would you know these are spoilers. we just really quickly they're pretty dangerous if not operated correctly uh, or maintained i don't know that i want one on my ped if i'm i don't want a stove ped is what i'm saying cuz yeah. i'm pretty sure it's going to blow up
1: well that just puts you in Wiley e. coyote cake Um, country there, dad, right? Like either if you're the coyote, it blows up. If you're the road runner, you're fine.
0: (laughs)
2: Right. (laughs) Right. Well, if you're the road runner, it somehow survives the overpressure and makes you go super fast uh, (laughs) without any, any danger.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, and that is one of the crazy things about uh, b- both Wild and Coyote and steam power. Uh, so quickly, why is it, Ben, I know you know how, why it's so dangerous. So this is kind of where in a lot of the steampunk stuff, you have to really take into consideration how
2: dangerous it is and how big it is. So quickly, why is it so dangerous? Well, pressure vessels are inherently dangerous. That, you know, even in the modern world, you know, with OSHA, you know, the that follows... Uh, safety practices in factories. The most, the things they look out for the most are pressurized tanks and things like that not being secured. And a steam boiler is nothing is simply a high pressure vessel. But in this case, back in the day, it's not made out of modern alloys. It's made out of you know wrought iron or maybe some old steel. You know, not modern mm-hmm. steel. And mm-hmm. if it gets overheated, the steel can creep and loot and start bulging and explode. And that often comes from just simple simple things like it running out of water. If you run out of water, the metal will heat up too much and it'll explode because it loses strength. Or, you know, you have these stories of engineers who were, uh, you know, behind schedule on their train. So they, you know, they crank the safety valve down a little bit so that they can get some more, or up, I guess, up. So they can get a higher pressure because they'll go faster with the higher pressure. But then the steam engine isn't designed for that high pressure and it blows up you know, so this pursuit of staying on schedule ends up with a blown up engine and you don't make your schedule at all.
1: It just goes to prove, you know, the tortoise and the hare story remains true. Even for a steam engine, um, <laughs> slow and steady wins the race. Um, fast blows you up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the, the message in the tortoise and hare original Aesop fable. I believe the hair blew up because he was pushing exactly himself too yeah. far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well,
2: yeah, the it. hair, the hair, uh, overrode its uh, safety valve and, uh, <laughs>
0: And blew up. <laughs> Exploded right before the finish line. Uh, that's the story I was told as a kid. Yeah. I don't know what, any, what anyone else heard. Uh, so you got this dangerous thing. You know, we, you talked about it being on a motorcycle, you know, the Stanley steamer, uh, which has a different meaning now. But back then it was a, that was a car that was a, a car that was driven by steam powered. Uh, I mean, th- th- so they had cars that were driven by steam, uh, but you know when you, you're talking about steampunk, one of the cool modes of conveyance is the dirigible, the airship, right? Uh, and this is, you know, it kind of had the, uh, you know, we have the Goodyear blimp now, but I think it, the the airship heyday was really in the, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, basically up until the Hindenburg. I think <laughs> is when people liked airships, uh, but you know there weren't a lot of lift vehicles. You know, the Wright brothers were still before this time, and they had lift vehicles, but you know, we didn't really have those. So what is it about flying Zeppelins as a staple? Could we, you know, could we have used that? Could we have gone that way uh, instead? I mean, is there, what are the physics behind it? So there are other ways to get a ship up safely besides using hydrogen and, you know, exploding a million people in the air?
1: Well, first of all, Dan, I wish we had gone with the name lift vehicles, not airplanes. Um, imagine, <laughs> you know, if we were just flying today, I'm, I'm
0: going to the lift port to take my lift vehicle. Yeah. Um, I mean, an elevator is a lift in, in England. So I mean, it's, no, yeah, you know, it's, exactly.
1: I, I just, yeah. I'm, I'm going to start a petition online to rename airplanes lift vehicles. Um,
0: but you know, I,
1: I, one of the things that's interesting to me about it, right, is the, some of the the, the trade offs here. You know, you mentioned the hydrogen. Exploding And hydrogen is flammable, and, and you do have to take care and such. Um, but, the, you know, airplanes carry a lot of stuff on them that can explode. Um, and, you know, we, we figured out safety mechanisms around it. And I think if we had never made the transition to lift vehicles or airplanes— mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we would have probably figured out a lot of these safety issues. I think the fascinating idea, right, is, is your lift independent of your thrust, right? So, basically, mm-hmm. that's what we went with, with the, you know, dirigibles and, and you know, whether it's hot air balloons or hydrogen-based or, you know, airships. Um, and then the airplane's idea was you just take advantage of the thrust to generate lift. And they are interesting in that I wonder how much— you know, we mentioned we're imagining a world with electronics. And it mm, really right. strikes me, I had never thought about it until we discussed this episode, how much electronics allows you to reduce the fundamental weight on your airplane so that you can get thrust that generates enough lift. And so without electronics, you're stuck with the dirigible and you do have to figure out, I think, these other safety issues. So from a physics point of view, I don't think a steam powered non-electric world Really ever get you functional airplanes like we have now just because of that scale issue, the weight issue, and the sizing of things.
2: The the big problem with steam engines is that they one, you need a big tank of water to keep them working. And water's heavy. <laughs> water is really heavy. And so to have a an airplane that can fly off of a steam engine is very problematic. And so you do, you do need the lift coming from another source like the helium, uh, blimp or the, you know, the hydrogen airship, because that's, you take out, you, you get that lift kind of for free. You know, you don't have to worry. You, you don't have to worry about it in terms of, do I have enough thrust to go over the wings? You can just keep making your, your balloon bigger to some degree. Uh, to deal with how big your steam engine has to be,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess I guess that makes sense. So you're saying you could get a steam engine into the air with a large enough balloon?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. and, and okay. then and then what you get to do, Dan? So then you you can have the steam engine to make your your thrust, your forward motion, if you really want. Um, you know, or you can have a whole bunch of people cranking a propeller, right? Yeah. You, you can go with the human, <laughs> and and I think I think you're actually the water is heavy. I think the steam engine will work better than uh, than extra people cranking the um, yeah. propeller.
2: Yeah. The the concern is actually, can you make a balloon? Can you make a steam engine that's powerful enough to overcome the wind uh, mm. a- effect on your enormous balloon to lift your steam engine? And so, you know, you, you may kind of be stuck with your steam engine just, you know, being there to drive your refrigerator for your drinks and you let the wind take you uh, where it's going. <laughs> so it's like a sailboat. In, yeah, in, in exactly. The sky. And,
1: and actually, I think that's a big steampunk theme, Dan, right, is where the airships are more like sail boats, um, and the balloon is really just giving you the lift, and you really are trying to use the winds and sail the skies instead of sail the seas. And I think what that basic physics overlooks is how much a sailboat actually leverages the water. Um, when, when you are flying in different directions, um, you actually get a lot of force and thrust by the way the water passes across you, not just the wind. Um, there's some interesting physics in in the sailboats and the water is denser than the air. So it, it's a, a six and one half dozen the other. But I think you're really in steampunk. That's what I always thought was cool is these flying ships that are really look, made to look like sailing ships of the 1800s, but just with a big balloon holding them up in the air.
2: The the interesting thing is the the hot air balloon is the sailing ship, right? If you, if you ride a hot air balloon today, there's no propellers on it. You just go up and the wind takes you where it takes you. So, you know, there's this interesting idea. Could you make a balloon, like an airship shaped balloon that has enough of that sideways uh, air resistance such that sails on top of it could actually be used to get the same effect that you have in the water where the water keeps you pointed in the direction you're going and the sails provide that thrust even if the wind isn't pointed in the direction you want to go?
0: I mean, I love that. I think we would have gotten there, you know, had we, had the Wright Brothers not come along. I mean, damn, the Wright Brothers, had, <laughs> we'd be flying around in airships. Uh, you know, but one of the things that I've got to stick in here, you know, you talked about pressurized boilers being very dangerous. You know, anyone who's played a zombie video game knows if you shoot a gas tank filled with pressurized gas, it's going to explode and take out a bunch of those zombies. So, uh, what am I? where am I going with this? What about a steam rocket? I mean, if you pressurize enough steam, couldn't you use that to propel yourself forward I know we're not getting to the moon on steam rockets but I feel like there's a way to do that and we have a rocket engineer here so it's a perfect (laughs) question to ask you
2: yeah so steam rockets were a subject of a lot of interest back in the day and we've I've played not with steam rockets but water rockets where you have you know you can take a two liter soda bottle this is you know, kind of a classic science fair project where you take a, a soda bottle, you put some water in it, you pump it up with a bike pump, you know, m- maybe put some fins on it. And if you, when you let it go, it'll, it'll fly because it, the, the pr- high pressure air pushes the water out. That water is your, your source of uh, reaction uh, weight, and that will make your rocket fly. And you can do the same thing with steam instead of pressurizing that rocket with, uh, pressurized air, if you boil the water in the rocket and then have a relief valve at the bottom, that'll, you know, that'll propel your rocket the exact same way, uh, potentially with more energy, because you can get theoretically get to a higher pressure and the steam will, cu- the water will kind of boil as it's going, giving you more energy. Uh, but it's, again, it, it gets back to that dangerous situation. You know, you're boiling a you're boiling water in a, in a closed vessel without any relief valve, uh, you know, if it, if it can blow up and blow up all your rockets in your cool little uh, rocket launching pad.
1: Well, I, I will just say, you know, safety is, is a key concern of many people, but apparently not me when I teach physics. So mm-hmm. we, we have a classic demo we do in physics that's the cold version of the steam rocket. It's called the liquid nitrogen cannon. And so what you do, liquid nitrogen just naturally (laughs) boils at room temperature. So you don't need a heat source. So you have a big metal tube that's mounted on wheels, hence the cannon. You fill it with liquid nitrogen. And then you like basically tap a water bottle into the front end to plug it up. You close your release valve and the liquid nitrogen boils, creating liquid nitrogen steam. The pressure builds up and eventually the thing launches out the end. And, you know, it's very exciting and, and the students all cheer. If you're really clever, you can overfill the thing with liquid nitrogen and freeze the water in your plastic bottle that's your cannonball. And so what happens (laughs) is when it bursts out the end, the plastic cracks. The water Uh, sprays everywhere and you get a lot of extra steam and you get the front row of your um, class or audience (laughs) wet, um, which has led to the classic um, in Denon's physics lab, it's like SeaWorld. Those who sit in the front two rows may get wet, so be careful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I imagine, you know, I grew up in the country. I got to stick in a story here as well since we've all got projectile, (laughs) (laughs) gas-powered projectile stories. When I was a kid, I remember seeing a potato cannon for the first time. And I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys know what yep. that is oh, yeah. but for those, those who are listening. So it's a it was a big long it's just really well made. It's a big log PVC pipe had a chamber uh and so you would take hairspray and you'd spray it in the chamber. You'd close it and then you'd stuff a potato in the in the the you know, the gun end is like a musket, really. He's plugging yep. it in, you know, pu- putting your own ball bearings. And then it had a little twisty flintlock on it. I guess it's a flintlock. I don't know what it is. But it would cause a spark. It would ignite the hairspray. And the potato would launch. It was the coolest thing I ever saw as a kid. Yeah, that's uh, I not imagine quite steam, Dad.
1: That, that's more explosive. No, but, you know, no, it, it's right. the same basic principle.
0: <laughs> right. No, I know it's not steam. Uh, but it's like an internal combustion engine. And those are those are outlawed in
2: the steampunk genre. Uh, but, I don't know, I, just, I love that, the idea of launching stuff. I, I mean, you, know. you could do the potato cannon with steam. You could boil water in there instead of, you know, burning hairspray. And then you get a cooked potato at the end.
0: Uh, <laughs> Launched over it to your work. neighbor's house. Yeah, It all it all works out. It you know, it all, it all get ma- back together. mashed potatoes
2: on what it hits.
0: Yeah. And you could put a, I wonder if you could put a grate in the front and make French fries, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself yeah. there. <laughs> uh, but, so oh, wait, let's, Dan, we've just
1: solved yeah. a, a cool steampunk technology, the French fryer.
0: I did it with Hairspray. Get that nice little uh, Aquanet, that Aquanet hint, hint to Aquanet uh, on the way out. Uh, But, you know, we talked about gear-based technologies, right? You know how I love it. I named the show after gear-based technologies. We can't get out of the steampunk genre without talking about the mechanized computers. I've mentioned a few times about my admiration for the, I can't say it properly, uh, but the anti mechanism. This was the ultimate in gear-based technologies, this ancient Greek device that could tie- tell you the, the constell- where all the constellations were going to be for hundreds of years into the future. Uh, this is, you know, I even think pocket watches are, are, are really cool. Uh, but, you know, you get to, when we're talking about steampunk, how do we make this advanced? You got Charles Babbage's Analytical Engine. Now, obviously, I love the name Analytical Engine. That was what I was going to call myself before I settled on the Analytical Mastermind. <laughs> uh, but this is, you know, it's a punch card based computer. And its purpose, I love this, I want to read this before I move on. Uh, its purpose. It was a special purpose machine designed to tabulate logarithms and trigon, trigom, trigonometric <laughs> baronomes, <laughs> uh, trigonometric functions <laughs> by evaluating finite differences to create approximating polynomials. I don't know what that means, it sounds pretty cool, but how can we turn that device into, uh, you know, complex computing and then ultimately into automatons which were the steampunk era robots. That's a question. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, And Wh- Where are we going with this?
1: Look, all, all it is is you start with your basic abacus, um, mm. which hopefully, I don't know if kids get to play with in school, but it's that really cool fundamental computer where you can practice adding real quickly using beads and moving them up and down on little wires, right? Because you're just keeping track of where things are. You move from there to doing everything in binary Um, everyone's favorite ones and zeros because it's just easier to make things that are either on or off. And we think about it, you know, we think there's something magical about computers because they're all electronic and they're small, but Mm. they really are just things that can either be on or off and change their on and offness in sort of through logic gates and logical ways. And you can do this electronically, but it's almost easier to do it mechanically. It's just harder to make the mechanical things small. Right. So the the step from Babbage's machine to do these calculations you talked about to actually what we think of as a modern computer with computer programming is intellectually or sort of abstractly not that hard. It just ends up being huge because it's the number of, of sort of. Transistors and and other you know sort of electrical elements you have on your circuit board that make the computer powerful, um, not the sort of basic structure. So this is where our the the smallest you can get is incredibly large problem really comes in more than mm-hmm. anything else. But I love I love me a mechanical computer. So I'm I'm with you, Dan. This is just awesome.
2: Well, what's interesting though is you mentioned binary, which is how our modern electronic computers work, but a lot of these Old mechanical computers didn't even work. In, didn't even need binary. You can make the gear represent, you know, zero to nine, and do and do math in numbers we understand intuitively, which is a really fascinating uh, benefit of these uh, machines, and something that is kind of lost in modern computer science, where, you know, not everybody just can think in binary it's it's a very different representation of numbers and because for whatever reason we chose base 10 as our society. We new, have ten fingers, Ben. Remember that we have,
1: yeah, ten, fingers. We have that, ten fingers. Yeah, it's because we have ten fingers. It's not for
0: whatever reason.
2: It's
1: <laughs> yeah. for our
0: ten fingers. Fair enough, <laughs> Ben. Most it's, of us have ten fingers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want Some people who operate steam engines may not yeah. have all of them.
2: If if only we had sixteen fingers, uh, you know, computers and people would have, would be in the same numbering system. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the case.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it raises an interesting question because, you know, Denny, you're talking about the, the scaling's difficult. Um, but, you know, mechanical punch cards, I, I don't want to sell these things short. I- I'm with you, Ben. They can do some pretty amazing things, including sending our, you know, our astronauts to the moon. It was a punch card computer that calculated our trip to the moon. Uh, so these can be very powerful. Now, I know that was augmented a little bit by electricity before anyone <laughs> comes after me for that. But it was still basically punch punch powered we do have a lot of peas in this episode then <laughs> uh, but I, I I think this is really amazing because it was going on then but the next step up that we have to go through is we have these punch powered computers. How do we turn it into an automaton? Another great thing, Steampunk, are these automated, these robot figures that are, you know, gear-based robots. Uh, You know, I I love the orchestrins. These are musical devices. Uh, Here in Los Angeles, there's a great museum called The Nethercut. And in it, they have these gigantic wooden cabinets with a full orchestra. I mean, a complete orchestra in them. And kind of like, you know, a a much more elegant and beefed-up player piano, you could stick in a punch card equivalent, and it would... you know, you got an orchestra. You got a ten-piece orchestra playing music in this gigantic cabinet, all through gear-based technology, all through analytical engines. There's something here, and I think had electricity not come along, I think we'd be walking around with with uh, mechanized robots. What do you guys think?
1: Well, you know, Dan, I really think so, except for one twist. Uh, this is actually, in my mind, best done pre steampunk right? This is a mm-hmm. case where I would rather base these on the sort of analog equivalent of the battery, which is the spring storage device. So the, the steampunk is the energy source, and we generally do it by rotating things. Most of these automaton and these, these other devices are simply done by hand cranking to tighten a spring which then is equivalent of your battery, the spring is storing the energy and then it slowly releases it, right? Right. And what's fascinating to me is in modern, right now in our source for clean energy, one of the biggest barriers is the battery technology, right? because you really, really need amazing storage mechanisms for electricity if you're gonna really achieve the clean energy you you want. because the solar and the wind are the cleanest, but you don't get them all the time. So you need some way to get electricity when they're not working. And I think the spring becomes the battery of steampunk. The spring Hmm. is your fundamental energy storage device in a steampunk world. And you would have seen great advances in material science around making better springs that can store energy for longer, so your automaton or your orchestra will work longer. Whereas now we're trying to get batteries to store our electricity for longer, and so this this hmm. was I I just think this is the coolest sort of physics material science moment of our steampunk without electricity world.
0: I, I think that's a great point then, and because you know, one of my favorite movies of the one of the favorite movies of my youth is one we don't talk about a lot, and most of society doesn't talk about a lot, and that's Return to Oz. I love this movie. It's not we can't do it as an episode because I don't think there's enough in it, but the, it includes a woman taking off her head, and I don't think we have the technology to keep heads alive inside of a gigantic cabinet. Uh, it's definitely not your mom's Wizard of Oz. Return to Oz is not. But the one thing they have in this in this movie is a robot named Tik And he's so cool because he's this gigantic copper steampunk robot. And he's got three turn cranks in the back, uh, keys or whatever you call them. And you twist them and once for speech one's for movement and one's for brain activity right like one's for for the brain and this is great cuz it's doing what you're talking about then and it's it's power, using springs to power up the steampunk robot and then what's great is there's great comedic moments where you know the brain runs out while the mouth is still moving and you know <laughs> he sounds a lot like me most of the time right where the brain, brain shut off uh, but it's you know it's a great idea and i think you're right then and this is the way to do it um ben, is this would we have gone in this direction is this what would have happened if we had you know if Edison, Tesla had never come along, electricity would have been a thing of the future?
2: Well, even if Edison and Tesla had come along, but we never figured out batteries for some reason, I think this would have been the future. (laughs) Because the storage of energy in springs is a pretty good way to store energy. It's not necessarily very efficient, but... You know, if you don't have anything better, that's kind of what you're left with. And so I'm I'm kind of I I I wasn't ready for this. I wasn't ready for Denon to bring in this. uh, Springs are the batteries of steampunk, because yeah, I I just hadn't thought of it. And I but I do think we would have come we would have come up with different geometries for these springs, different materials to use, so that they would be. Uh, that you would get stay out of the, the plastic region of deformation so that the spring would not uh, deform at all and continue working. There'd be a very interesting metallurgy around how to make better and better springs. Well, I think that the, the plastic area of deformation is a place I don't ever
0: want to go. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but it's a very dangerous place. Don't ever step foot there. Well, this uh, is the
1: I, problem with plastic man versus elastic man, but that's a whole different right. episode. That's
0: a whole different That's a whole different show, Denon. That's a whole different show. Uh, I do love that you broke our resident biologi- a battery-powered robot with the thought that he could be powered by springs. Uh, I think that's put into his, his programming. He's not allowed to compute that. Uh, but if you, there's anything that we've missed, uh, this is the place we're going to talk about it this is our errors additions and omissions section this is things that we didn't quite get to but we still want to talk a little bit about i'm going to put that in there then did you have anything about steampunk that we didn't quite get to you wanted to cover
1: well i just you know i really like the look of steampunk Mm. And, and I do wonder, you know, Steampunk often has goggles, right? I, I You know, we a talked lot about lot cosplay. <laughs> a There's a lot, lot, of, lot goggles of goggles in Steampunk. And it just makes me wonder, did they really think that's what's going to protect them from the explosion of the boiler? I mean, I assume that's what the goggles are for um, yeah. because obviously – you know, you don't want your goggles fogging up or steaming up. There's a lot of steam around. So the goggles, you know, are problematic from that perspective. Um, So I just, I, the, the goggle thing looks cool. Don't get me wrong. I like the look, but I don't understand it. It's, it's the one piece, you know, like I say, as I mean, but let's face it, you know, I, I'm a practicing physicist at a university. We care about safety all the time. You can't be in your lab without goggles Um, even, you know, even if they're not going to protect you from the exploding boiler. So the the goggles, you know, the the goggles are the element here that I'm trying to figure out their use. I understand the physics of goggles. I want to be clear about that. It's not the physics that's confusing me. It's actually what is it just a style or is it actually practical?
0: I think it's a style. Uh, I do, and I do think even I understand the physics of goggles. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think I understand most of it. So I'm deaf. I guarantee you understand it, then. And this is not a comprehension issue. I think it's an aesthetic <laughs> issue. I think you're right, but I, I like them as well. Uh, and so it does you? make
1: me wonder, Dad, on, on yeah. your fascinating noun episodes, because I love yeah. the ones on fashion. Yeah. Uh, uh, have you ever <laughs> have you interviewed a fashion expert on goggles, or was it just ties and shirts and collars?
0: Well, we talked about the Victorian era, but because Steam wasn't powering everything back then, I mean, we didn't, we didn't talk about goggles. I might have to revisit it uh, and discuss why copper goggles are, are used. Uh, I love them because, you know, uh, my favorite characters in all these fantasy worlds are tinkerers, and everything's always exploding. They're always running around with explosives, you know. But why prospectors didn't have them. Uh, I'll never understand. They're always running around <laughs> with nitroglycerin. Uh, and why not face masks? Well, we could we could talk about goggles forever, then and I don't know why they didn't even have face masks. but. What about you, Ben? Did goggles bother you this much? Uh, or was there anything else you wanted to talk about
2: that we didn't no, quite get to? No, I think I think it's important to think about goggles because in the steampunk world, <laughs> you know, you you have the risk of things exploding all the time, and that eye protection yeah. is important. And you know, a, a face shield would definitely be better. But you know, in the absence of you know face shields, yeah, wear those goggles. Another thing to remember is, you know, especially in a world where it's it's coal based. Um, you know, you're going to have a lot of soot and a lot of that stuff is kind of acidic and you don't want it getting into your eyes. It'll sting. Uh And so having those goggles will also protect your eyes from the kind of crummy, uh, atmosphere that's going to be around in this steampunk world. Well, not your lungs. (laughs) It won't protect your lungs, but it will protect your eyes. Yeah, you should probably Uh have a mask too. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: <laughs> right. Well, uh, speaking of explosions When I thought, you know, I watched Wild Wild West One of my favorite parts of that movie Was there's this old general who must have had his ear blown off And they've attached like a little horn Like on the old phonographs right to his ear I thought that was a great use of a prosthetic uh, I wish they would have kind of done more with that I thought that was really cool uh, But is there anything about steampunk that you think that we missed That you want to tell us about You can get in touch with the show We're on social media, easy to get a hold of You can find the show on Twitter at at f triple We're on Facebook, at f triple But of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter
1: and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, I'm at Prof Denon Michael.
2: Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B-S-E-P-S-E-R. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram,
0: at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook, at Analytical Mastermind. And if you have any questions you want us to answer, you can contact the show via Steampunk Era Technology, i.e. email, and that is questions at com.
1: And as you listen to us on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you rate and review and double check that you're subscribed.
2: And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring the bell so you never miss an episode and you help us out with that algorithm.
0: (laughs) And and finally, this show contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination or time alteration, to be perfectly honest. Now remember, before you make your decision, you want to try to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.